I'd like to borrow um, an instruction from a friend of ours, Eugene Cash, for how to listen to a Dharma talk. He likes to uh, instruct us to listen only with 15% of your attention on the words and the other 85% of your attention in your body, in, in what your experience is actually in this moment. And I think that that does um, a couple of things. One, uh, we listen to the Dharma with some care and respect, as Jack spoke about a few nights ago, because we sit in dignity. And the second thing it does is, uh, instead of um, trying to think through the meaning of the words, rather we get a sense of the spirit of the words and um, we pay attention to what is actually happening in our experience right now. So I invite you to try it. Every time um, I give those instructions, people are a bit alarmed because they think that maybe they won't actually hear what's being said and that perhaps it's not um, just for the speaker, but it actually is a very um, honoring thing to be with your experience as you listen. So we've been here um, walking and sitting and practicing together. And in some ways, this practicing together could really be a model for how to live in the world for all of us. We've essentially, in large part, I think, in in speaking to some of you today in interviews and yesterday and the day before, we've in large part, although we we all have strong views and opinions about lots of things, I can vouch for that, in some ways we put them aside and we come together to practice Dharma practice Buddha Dharma together. And in practicing together, it really is a beautiful model for a way in which the world could be. If we could all have some common interest in peace and harmony. And what is interesting is that 
although we all want peace in our world, we all want peace in our communities, we all want peace in our hearts, it seems to elude us. And so we wonder how we can establish a basis in our practice that advances the cause of peace. This retreat was advertised as a retreat of inclusivity. And I was reflecting on that word. And so as I reflected on the word, I thought, well, let me look in the dictionary and see what it actually means. And I was amazed at how many meanings the word inclusivity has. Well, actually, I couldn't find inclusivity, but I did find include. And it said to hold or contain, to let in, to admit, to comprehend, to comprise, to contain, to embrace. And it had related terms, assimilate, associate, come together, enfold, enshrine, make one, reckon with, take up, unify, unite, take into account. And then it had antonyms, leave out, shut out, omit, as Sylvia has been pointing out to us, omitting none. And I realized that in a way, um, making this a retreat of inclusivity was redundant. That we are already included, that we are already all together in this humanity. but that we could come together to unify and unite and take up and reckon with and make one and enshrine and enfold and embrace. And when I was reflecting on that, I thought, well, I'll give a talk on interconnectedness. because all of the ways in which we enfold, enshrine, make one, unify, and unite, and embrace are really all very natural expressions of how we are already. That we don't need to talk about including each other because we are already included in each other. Marcus Aurelius said, all parts of the universe are interwoven with one another and the bond is sacred. So there is this bond that we already have. We are already enfolded into each other. There's a 
a phenomenon called Indra's net that's uh, described in the Avatamsaka Sutra. And it reads like this. It says, far away in the heavenly abode of the great god Indra, there is a wonderful net which has been hung by some cunning artificer in such a manner that it stretches out indefinitely in all directions. In accordance with the extravagant tastes of deities, the artificer has hung a single glittering jewel at the net's every node. And since the net itself is infinite in dimension, the jewels are infinite in number. There hang the jewels, glittering like stars of the first magnitude, a wonderful sight to behold. If we now select one of these jewels for inspection and look closely at it, we will discover that in its polished surface there are reflected all the other jewels in the net, infinite in number. Not only that, but each of the jewels reflected in this one jewel is also reflecting all the other jewels so that the process of reflection is infinite. So this is um, a metaphor for the way we are together. When any one jewel in the net is affected, all of the other jewels in the node are affected too. And it speaks to the hidden, and maybe not so hidden, interconnectedness and interdependency of everything and everyone in the universe. And it was said even quite articulately by Martin Luther King. He said, all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. When we get up in the morning, we go into the bathroom where we reach for a sponge provided for us by a Pacific Islander. The towel is provided by a Turk. We reach for soap created by a Frenchman. In the kitchen, you drink coffee provided by a South American or tea by a Chinese or cocoa by a West African, and you butter toast from an English-speaking farmer. Before you've finished breakfast, you're dependent on more than half the world. This is the way our universe is structured. This is its interrelated quality. We aren't going to have peace on Earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of the universe. So last night, 
Larry spoke so beautifully about feeling different, about the suffering of that, and also the honoring of that. And so when we speak about interconnectedness, it's not to say that it's antithetical to the honoring of our differences. Rather, it's the recognition that we can celebrate and honor those differences, and yet understand deeply that those differences don't mean that we're disconnected. But it means that we needn't be blind to those, dis- to those differences, and we needn't be blind either to our commonality. Because as I reflect and I look out into the room, I may see only about a hundred bodies. But actually, when you think about it, there are a million people in this room with us. Maybe there are even all six billion. We bring here with us our friends, the spouse that we left at home, the children, our mothers, our fathers, our ancestors. All of that history, everything that we are, when we, we don't have to look or dig very deeply to see that where we are right now is completely dependent on the causes and conditions, not only that we've created in our lives, but that's been created by all of our ancestors, by our friends, by our enemies, by all of our relations. So they're all in the room with us. And there is nothing we can do about it. It's not that we're fabricating this interconnectedness or we're putting uh, words or concepts on something that doesn't exist to make it happen. It actually is true. There was a monk in the Buddha's time who came from an extremely wealthy aristocratic family so his life had been very limited by a sheltered existence. One day, some of the monks were teasing him, and they asked, Brother, where does rice come from? And he said, It comes from a golden bowl. And then they asked him, Where does milk come from? And he replied, It comes from a silver bowl. He really thought it was true. The only time he'd seen either rice or milk, they were presented to him in gold and silver bowls. And so he assumed that that is how they came into being. And for a lot of us living in this 21st century, our lives are like that. In this industrialized society, we get our milk in cartons 
And we also get our rice in cartons. So we can actually be very disconnected from the way things actually are. And it takes some effort to slow down and to actually open up in order to see that there is a whole web of connections that feed us, that keep us warm, that keep these lights on, that give us all of our modern conveniences. And so as we sit and we walk and we settle down in our practice, we begin to take the time to see what's really true in our experience. We begin to understand all of the relationships, influences, and factors that all come together to produce this moment. Sylvia spoke about that yesterday. She said that perhaps we can't draw straight lines and say, this caused that. But there's an intricate web of causes and conditions that bring us here together in this moment. There's a wonderful poem by Denise Levertov. disappeared into the web. (laughs) Nope, gone. Well, ah, here it is. Didn't disappear into the web. Intricate and untraceable, weaving and interweaving, dark strand with light. Designed beyond all spiderly contrivance to link, not to entrap. Elation, grief, joy, contrition, entwined, shaking, changing, forever forming, transforming, all praise, All praise to the great web. So it becomes obvious when we learn that the flapping of a butterfly's wing in the Amazon can change our weather here in California. And it doesn't always lead to positive outcomes. We learn that emissions from our cars and our industry can affect the temperature in such a way as to melt the ice in the Antarctic, or that our recklessness and our selfishness can affect the whole world's air quality, the ozone layer, the weather, and our food supply. Yet this law of interconnectedness 
can also teach us to be responsive to the needs of others, to know that taking care of others is inextricably tied to taking care of ourselves. When we honor our interconnection, we're called to justice, to conscience, and to natural compassion. We can be open to what is called in the Mahayana practice, bodhicitta. And literally, bodhicitta means bodhi, the awakened citta mind. And it's expressed in a motivation that we can nurture and cultivate, that we practice and live our lives for the benefit, the happiness, the welfare, and the awakening of all beings, that we care for one another. And as we get a glimpse of this, even in the form of an aspiration to cultivate it, our lives can be transformed. So this heart-mind of awakening can be cultivated. And it's said in the Tibetan tradition that meditation on the awakening mind is our primary practice. And that having ascertained this, everything becomes a factor in the awakening mind. So this bodhicitta is a central uh, practice, this idea that it's not just for ourselves alone that we practice, but for everyone. And if we reflect on interconnectedness, then it becomes very clear that our practice can't help but be for the benefit of all beings. If we're all jewels in Indra's net reflecting back to each other, back and forth from each other, then of course whatever we do, if our minds are clear and our hearts are open, that affects the whole net. So this is as inclusive as we can get. And this notion of the aspiration of bodhicitta is not some faraway ideal that we hope to aspire to someday, but it's an aspiration that we can realize right here and right now. On many occasions, I've sat with the Dalai Lama several times uh, over the years, and on many occasions, he teaches from a text called um, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life by Shantideva. And he actually weeps every single time that he reads a particular passage. And this passage is about the aspiration 
to, uh, to uh, bodhicitta. And that passage says, during the intermediate eon of famine, may I become food and drink for sentient beings who are poor and famished. May I remain in their presence as various necessities. And may I protect those without protection and be a guide leading those upon the path. May I become a vessel, a bridge, and a ship for those who wish to cross over the ocean. May I be an island for those searching for land and a lamp for those needing light. May I become a bed for those who need rest and to serve all who want assistance. May I become accomplishing mantras and excellent vases, fabulous wish-fulfilling trees, and great elements such as the earth. May I be the basis of sustenance for limitless sentient beings, existing eternally for them like space. In this way, just as all realms of sentient beings are infinite, like the expanse of the sky, may I become the basis for their sustenance until they all attain the state beyond sorrow. May I become a bed for those who need rest. May I become a vessel, a bridge, and a ship for those who wish to cross over the ocean. May I become the basis for their sustenance until they all attain the state beyond sorrow. He usually puts his hand, his head in his hands, and he weeps at just the thought that one may be the agent for the liberation of all beings. And I was actually at um, a monastery in Carmel, New York, when he was there, and it was a relatively intimate setting. And he had given a teaching, and he had read that passage and wept again. And when he came to questions, someone asked him, Your Holiness, why, do you, why did you weep? And he just said very simply that the thought that he might be the instrument of liberation for even one other being was so incredibly moving to him. So the practice that we do here is not trivial. Someone asked me today in an interview, what am I doing here? I could be out having fun. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, Aren't you having fun? (laughs) This is great fun. Because we're actually doing the practice 
of understanding our own hearts and our own minds. And the more we understand our own hearts, the nature of our own hearts, and the nature of our own minds, the more we understand everyone else. Our individual stories may all be different. And we've heard lots of stories of the tremendous pain and suffering that is in all of our lives. Because none of us is exempt. Yet underneath it all, underneath all of these stories, is a common humanity. Perhaps there's the pain of abandonment, or of feeling different, or of abuse, physical or psychological. And as horrendous as some of the stories that we all have are, the experience of pain and suffering, the nature of the experience of pain and suffering is the same for all of us. It's part of our humanity. As the Buddha said, the first noble truth is, there is suffering. And when we understand the nature of anger and fear and love and compassion, It's the same in all of our minds and our hearts, no matter what our nationality, our ethnicity, our sexual orientation, our gender, whatever all of those differences are that are certainly to be honored, there is that commonality. And the realization of this commonality of experience gives rise to great compassion for the suffering of others, because we understand the suffering in ourselves. I was on a three-month retreat um, a couple of years ago at IMS. And a friend of mine was also there. And she had to leave early. As she left, the day that she left, I happened to be there in the front of um, the building as she was waiting for her car. And we, even though we were supposed to be in silence, we embraced as she was leaving. And she whispered something in my ear. And as she asked me, she whispered, she asked whether, she could tell my husband, John, anything. And I said, no. And as she asked that question, 
some great sadness rose up in me. And as we parted, the sadness overwhelmed me so intensely and so incredibly that I actually had to go to my room because I was weeping so hard. And I had absolutely no idea what this was about. But I stayed with it. And I thought, well, it's really crazy because I would see her in, you know, a very short while and it didn't seem that sad that she was leaving. But something in the whole experience triggered something. And it took days and days and days of weeping and um, finally going to an interview with a teacher and telling them of this experience that it was so incredibly difficult to have my friend leave and how sad and how overblown my my reaction or response was to this event. And as I was talking to the teacher, a whole experience from my childhood arose. And it was an experience of um, my mother leaving when I was five years old. And it was, a, it was an experience that I hadn't even realized had happened. But as I talked to this teacher um, and we began to tease it out, it became very clear that that's what had happened. And over the next couple of days, every time I sat in the meditation hall, the experience of this abandonment just reappeared and the waves of sadness and grief overtook me. So I'd go back to my room and I'd weep and then I'd go back to the meditation hall and I'd start to weep again and I'd have to go back to my room and this went on for a couple of days. Until one day I went into the meditation hall and as I sat there suddenly images of five-year-old girls from all over the world who had been abandoned came into my consciousness. And it it appeared as if they were coming from the back of my head and they would come around and they would face me. And they were faces of Chinese girls and Japanese girls and African girls and Jamaican girls and American girls and Canadian girls and just thousands and thousands and thousands of five-year-old girls coming and going in my mind, showing me abandonment of five-year-old girls all over the world. And what I realized from this experience, what appeared in my mind, I, had, I, would, I have to say it appeared because I wasn't even thinking about it, was that it was not abandonment 
that this abandonment was not personal, that this abandonment was just abandonment. It's what happens in life. And that this experience was not my experience so much as it was an experience of the abandonment of the whole world. And that this sadness was a sadness that didn't belong to me exclusively, but that actually belonged to the whole world. That this connection that I have with the world is real and it's true. And that whatever happens in my life, I don't have to take personally because it's just the measure of the pain that's been assigned to me. And that we all get a measure of the world's pain assigned to us. So in the same way that we see that this experience of abandonment or for that matter, this experience of pain or of suffering is not just mine, but it's a universal experience. In the same way, we can see the great potential for freedom in everyone else when we see it in ourselves. And this way, in the solitude, we become increasingly connected. And when we're sitting and walking, and we thought we have pain in the body, and our minds are going all over the place, and you know, nothing seems to be happening. And, you know, the last time that we saw a breath that we actually felt was about three hours ago. (laughs) We may wonder, you know, maybe my neighbor's practice can be for the benefit of all beings. (laughs) But my practice, I hope it's not for the benefit of all beings. But it's not true, you know. It really is for the benefit of all beings. Because whatever we do and however we are in the world actually does affect everyone else. By now, most of us or all of us know the story of Gandhi when India and Pakistan were being partitioned and the Hindus and the Muslims were at war with each other and tens of thousands of people were killed. And the army was sent into the Punjab. 10,000 troops were sent in to see if they could subdue the violence. And nothing worked. There was just more violence. 
And Gandhi went to Calcutta and he said, I'm going to undertake this fast and if I have to undertake it to the death, I will do so until the violence stops. And it stopped. So by the force of his moral integrity, by the force of his stature that was so great, he did what 10,000 troops couldn't do. So how we are does have tremendous consequences for the world. And perhaps we think that this is just some small kindness. Perhaps we think it's just some small, being here for five days is just some small token, some small offering. It's huge. To realize that how we are has tremendous consequences for the world is to remember that we're not practicing for ourselves alone. So when we make this bodhicitta a conscious motivation for our practice, it can give us tremendous energy. And when we strengthen this motivation, it itself will suffuse our practice with love and with compassion. It puts our whole journey in a much larger context. And it reminds us of the connection of our practice to everyone around us. Thich Han said, when you are able to get out of the shell of the small self, you will see that you are interrelated to everyone and everything, that your every act is linked with the whole of humankind and the whole cosmos. Yesterday, Sylvia talked about um, the three insights that into the nature of things that come in our practice when she was giving instructions on um, mindfulness of Vedana, feelings. She talked about anicca and dukkha and anatta, that everything is impermanent, 
that nothing, 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 nothing ever stays the same. That everything is other than it was a moment before. And dukkha, that no matter how hard we try, we can never ever make life perfect in our estimation. That we lose what is dear to us, we get what we don't want, we don't get what we want, and that external circumstances never ever live up to our fantasy or ideal of what we think they ought to be. It's always other than the way we think it ought to be. And then she talked about anatta, that although we may perceive ourselves as separate, that we may perceive ourselves as solid and self-existing, that we are inextricably interconnected. So it's this insight into anatta that we've been speaking about tonight this idea that however we perceive the self to be existing, it's not so. And this, um, this looking to, to find the interconnectedness, this looking to find the way we actually are, the way we actually exist in the world, is not meant to um, impose some kind of belief on you about the way you ought to think about things, but rather is for your reflection, so that you can begin to look and see, is this really true? Is it true, really, that things are impermanent? Is it true that things aren't in this moment what they were a moment ago? And is it really true that things never live up to our expectations? These are not um, theories about life. These are actually insights that come through our practice. And they come through a practice of actually being willing to be attentive in every single moment, to actually see what's true right now, right where you are. Anatta is is one of the insight that people have the most trouble with. And so perhaps if you start to look at it, come at it from this way, this, um, for me, self-evident interconnectedness, this self-evident connection that we all have to each other, that your insights will be from your own experience rather than because someone told you so. That's one of the, that was 
the most attractive thing to me about the Dharma when I first encountered it. When I was told that the Buddha said, don't believe what I say because you think I'm a wonderful teacher or because you think I have some kind of attainment, but actually, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. So this uh, interconnectedness is something that you don't have to believe, that you can look at every time you pick up a towel, every time you drink a cup of coffee, every time you drink a cup of tea, or you turn on a light, or you go to the bathroom and flush a toilet, thank the plumber. Yeah? Or um, any, when you put your clothes on, you can thank the earthworms and the soil and the sun and the rain and the seamstress and the trucks that brought it to you and begin to really see that we are completely interdependent, that we're not separate. I'll just close with a story that someone told me about um, a Twilight Zone, ep- Twilight Zone episode where Burgess Meredith was the actor. Some of you may be too young to remember Burgess Meredith. And the story was that there was this, he was a man who loved books, loved to read. And that's all he wanted to do. He didn't want anything to do with anybody. And there was nuclear holocaust. And he happened to be the last survivor. And he said, good, I've got my books, and that's all I need. And I'm just going to read my books. And his glasses broke. So let's sit. <laughs>